This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. This week, world leaders furious at the latest WikiLeaks revelations. There is nothing brave about sabotaging the peaceful relations between nations on which our common security depends. And the new head of the armed forces in Afghanistan. It's quite clear from our intelligence that the Taliban are beginning to hurt. BFBS. Headlines. England's bid to stage the 2018 World Cup has ended in failure. Russia will host the tournament, despite a widely praised presentation from Prince William, David Cameron and David Beckham. The cold snap is still causing havoc across much of Britain. Around 7,000 schools have been closed, along with some airports. In Hampshire, the army has been called in to help stranded motorists. It's been confirmed the British aid worker Linda Norgrove was killed by a grenade thrown by US forces during a failed attempt to rescue her from kidnappers in Afghanistan. The special forces team involved has been disciplined by US military authorities. Qantas has said it wants compensation from Rolls-Royce after an engine exploded in one of its super jumbos last month. A report in Australia says there is a critical safety issue with that model of engine. And Swedish police are to issue a new international arrest warrant for the founder of the WikiLeaks website. Julian Assange denies allegations of rape and sexual assault. We know much more today about the real state of the world than we did a week ago after more revelations from the whistleblowing website WikiLeaks. But it's raised a whole series of questions. Did Britain really promise to protect the US from embarrassment at the Iraq inquiry? Is China ready to sell out North Korea, approving a unified country run by Seoul? Among the quarter of a million diplomatic cables to and from US embassies around the world, details of the fears of American and British diplomats that Pakistan's nuclear material could be used by terrorists. The Prime Minister's among those condemning the release of classified information, but it seems the leaks won't stop any time soon. James Hurst looks at the information that's been made public so far. The cables range from little more than diplomatic gossip to the gravest fears of some of the world's most powerful people. One of the first cables, said the Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, plays Robin to Putin's Batman. The latest cables released in the last 24 hours, though, are much more serious, calling Russia a virtual mafia state. And they say there are unanswered questions about whether Prime Minister Putin has links to organised crime. He went straight on to CNN to brand it a deliberate smear campaign. Some experts believe that somebody is deceiving WikiLeaks, their reputation being undermined to use them for their own political purposes later on. Perhaps the most serious claims so far laid bare by these cables are that some Arab leaders, including from Saudi Arabia and Jordan, have been urging America to attack Iran. One of the few issues that US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton seems a little bit pleased to have come out into the open. The comments that are being reported on, allegedly from the cables, confirm the fact that Iran poses uh, 
a very serious threat in the eyes of many of her neighbours. Among the other claims from these cables, one that China sees its communist ally North Korea as a spoilt child and is ready now to see it reunified with the South. I think the truth about the Chinese position, if these cables do relay the truth, is a very important thing that the world should know. That's David Lee, The Guardian's investigations editor. Others, though, see this leak as having ruined any fledgling chance of China supporting reunification. Also revealed in the documents, the scale of British and American concern that nuclear material from Pakistan's weapons programme could end up in the hands of terrorists. Sajan Goel from the Ancient Pacific Foundation says those concerns are real. In the past, there were individuals that were even met with al-Qaeda's leadership to talk about uh, exchanging uh, nuclear material. For Britain, among the embarrassing tidbits like Prince Andrew being branded cocky and rude... There are two particularly significant cables so far. One from last year reveals a promise by a senior official at the MOD to protect American interests in the Iraq inquiry. Bob Ainsworth was Defence Secretary at the time of that promise. I can't remember any conversation with any official about uh, keeping US interests out of the Iraq inquiry. I don't think that ministers were... You know, allowed or that it was appropriate that we should interfere. Another cable suggests that senior British military figures believed last autumn that Britain could contribute between one and 2,000 more troops to Afghanistan. In the end, it sent 500 extra, after appealing to the US to understand the political pressures on Gordon Brown. Each of these cables is based on the thoughts of individual diplomats or their sources. They don't necessarily represent government policy or, in some cases, truth. Perhaps there is little surprise in many of the frank opinions that have been revealed, but the intent to keep them secret was not without reason. Nobody has come out of it particularly well. The pressure is, though, perhaps greatest on the source of these leaks, the US. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is trying to ride it out with a smile. In my conversations, at least one of my counterparts... uh said to me, well, don't worry about it, you should see what we say about you. But whatever the diplomatic understanding, there is also the potential for damage, and there are many, many more of these cables still to come. So far, none of the cables sent between the US Embassy in London and Washington during the run-up to the Iraq war have been revealed. If and when they are, they will be studied carefully to see if they confirm or contradict the evidence given to the Iraq inquiry. James Hurst reporting, well, Jack Straw was Foreign Secretary for five years, including the build-up to the invasion of Iraq. I spoke to him earlier and asked him whether he was worried those diplomatic cables would soon be leaked. They may indeed come out. I don't know by definition what they've got. Um, All the uh, cables, every single document... Uh, in respect of the Iraq war, has been made available to the official Chilcot inquiry that's looking at this. Um, but, of course, um, like the rest of the WikiLeaks uh, material, a large uh, part of uh, the communication between us and the United States was confidential or secret, and you, you can't conduct diplomats, diplomatic relationships nor a, a, a military action without uh, a high level of secrecy. When John Day from the MOD said that measures would be put in place to protect US interests, what did he mean exactly at the Iraq inquiry? Well, the, I mean, the Iraq inquiry had been highly responsible in any event uh, in re- recognising that a large part of the material to which they have access cannot be made uh, fully public. Uh, and uh, they've held some, a series of, of uh, sessions in confidence 
it is also the case that uh, sometimes in public sessions they are referring to uh, documents which they have seen and which the witness knows they have seen, uh, but it is in uh, no public interest that anyone can conceive of that these should be made uh, open and public. Uh, and I think everybody understands that, and, and the reaction of the overwhelming majority of people uh, to these WikiLeaks is that these are highly uh, irresponsible. They cannot but undermine good relations, in this case with the United States. WikiLeaks argue it's in the public interest. Um, if the public know that things are not going to be made public, that were submitted the RAC inquiry, they're entitled to feel that it's a bit of a whitewash, aren't they? No, they're not. And that's just, if you may say so, um, I mean, arrogance uh, by uh, WikiLeaks. To whom are they responsible? They're not responsible to uh, anybody at all. Uh, I know of no one, not even the most passionate advocate of freedom of information, who says that uh, all communications, uh, internal in the government or with other governments, should be made public. In terms of confidentiality, uh, did relations with the US, um, between the US and the UK, have any bearing on the kind of evidence that you were able to give at the Iraq inquiry? Well, um, the, the uh, Iraq inquiry are fully aware of... Um, communications uh, which were confidential or secret um, between myself and those with whom I... So I, you were saying there were things that you didn't say at the Iraq inquiry because they were known behind closed well, doors? Well, it, it, it it's, not, it's not quite like that, but that, that it, 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 it's a matter of public record that some of the information uh, to which the Iraq inquiry has access uh, is remaining confidential. Uh, quite an effort has been made to release quite a lot of previously confidential information where it's judged that, uh, that it's uh, safe to do so. But there are particular sensitivities, and there have to be, uh, about uh, the release of communications uh, concerning the attitudes and positions of foreign governments. Mr. Straw, have you ever had to lie, tell an untruth, or be duplicitous for the greater good of foreign policy or diplomatic relations? I've never had to do any of those things. I've certainly had to, uh, quite frequently, to say I can neither confirm nor, de nor deny uh, a suggestion uh, that has uh, been made uh, to me. Uh, and that indeed is the standard formula one has to use in respect of intelligence operations. But that's a, a very different thing from telling uh, an untruth. The former Foreign Secretary Jack Straw speaking to me earlier. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee would normally be in the studio with me today. He's snowed in, but he's still on the line. Hi, Christopher. How are you doing? Hello there. Yeah. Can I just say one quick thing? Go ahead. When my cousin joined the Foreign Office, listen to Jack Straw, my cousin joined the Foreign Office, and said, what are you going to be doing? He said, I'm going out to lie for my country. <laughs> He didn't, did he? Yes, he did. No, yes. it's not. It's not. Well. It's not. It's neither confirming nor denying. Uh, uh, Christopher, um, th that is the key thing, though, isn't it? The difference between telling a lie and not telling the whole truth. Uh, is that the only way to conduct international diplomacy? Uh, no, it's not. And, and in fact, the whole thing, if you look at the WikiLeaks stuff, the whole thing is, is, is not so dramatic as people might think. I mean, only 6%. I mean, Jack Straw was going on about the secrecy. Only 6%. Of the 251,000 cables, 6% are secret. That's about 15,000. Most of it, 60%, is not even <coughs> classified. And so it is not so embarrassing as people would say. Uh, it just means that, you, you know, for a bit, you're just a bit cautious of what you might say to somebody. Mm. You were privy to some of those conversations about reassuring the Americans, weren't you? What happened? Well, I was, um, for all sorts of reasons, that I was sort of in contact with uh, certain American characters in, in, in the State Department. 
And quite frankly, they were saying to me, you know, what's this Chilcot inquiry? What's it going to do? Is it going to start? Uh, do they want evidence from us? What will they say about us? And the person I was with, who was uh, in the defence ministry at the time, and he said, look, don't worry. He said, anything that is classified will remain classified. The other thing you've got to accept, look at the terms of reference for that, uh, for the uh, Chilcot inquiry. They do not put people on trial. It is mm. not a court of law. That was the way it was done. It was done very, very casually. Uh, the cables suggest, Christopher, that Britain and America have little faith in Pakistan's leaders. Um, it's not an optimistic picture of the country's future, and that's bound to have ramifications for Afghanistan, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, I mean, one of the things that they, that they, don't, they don't accept, uh, they don't accept that uh, President Karzai is a good guy, but he's our good guy. Um, they don't uh, accept that the Pakistan leadership is in absolute control. They do accept that the uh, Pakistan intelligence uh, service is in greater control, is running things. But most important of all, as, as, as James was saying in his report, they actually believe that al-Qaeda has actually got hold of some of the people who are working on the nuclear program. And they believe it is very likely that the next 9-11 will be a mushroom cloud. Now that is probably the most uh, frightening thing to come out of these WikiLeaks. On that note, Christopher, stay with us. Um, the diplomatic files also reveal criticism of Britain's military performance in Afghanistan. 106 British servicemen died in operations to secure Sangin in northern Helmand over a four-year period. When control was handed to US forces earlier this year, American generals said they were inheriting a solid security bubble from the British. But the leaked cables apparently disclosed the contempt of American commanders for Britain's performance in Sangin. Before we came on air, we spoke to our Porter Will Inglis at Camp Bastion and started by asking whether that suggests America's public praise was dishonest. Well, dishonesty is quite a strong word, although even at the time you could pick up an implicit disquiet behind the scenes, as witnessed by the change in tactics that ensued. It's no secret that the US Marine Corps has used a different approach in Sangin. They've closed down a lot of the smaller patrol bases and checkpoints in the area, the argument being that they were so resource-intensive to defend, they reduced the ability to conduct manoeuvre operations against the enemy. Another key change, and not limited to Sangin, is the arrival in theatre of the M1 Abrams main battle tank. Now this is not something the British forces have ever employed. We understand they won't be used in time-honoured uh, armoured corps large formations, more to provide ice star and fire support to dismounted infantry. Of course another side effect of the handover of Sangin was the ability for the British forces to concentrate more on central Helmand and increase troop numbers there. Meanwhile the new head of the armed forces has been to Afghanistan this week and talking about when British troops could start to come home. Yeah, General Sir David Richards dropped into Camp Bastion last weekend. He spoke to British Forces News about progress being made here in Helmand in pretty rosy terms. I, I've always said that in every insurgency there is going to be a point at which you start a political process um, where it's quite clear from our intelligence that the Taliban are beginning to hurt. You know, there's a huge surge that's only now really getting into, it, into gear. Well, of course, he's no stranger to Afghanistan's problems as a former commander of the international force here. We asked him if the campaign here, added to the Strategic Defence and Security Review, made it a tough time to take the top job. Someone said to me the other day, not congratulations, they sort of commiseration. And I think that's probably quite a good term because I didn't expect to be a general. Now I'm CDS and, yes, there's a few challenges out there. But I'll tell you what makes it worthwhile. And on a trip like this, you see it. That's meeting the most fantastic people. And I think anyone in my position worth their salt will always put them first and want to do the right thing by them. 
Uh, all the talk is still about a phased withdrawal of combat forces between 2012 and 2015, even though there are still questions about whether Afghan forces will really be ready to take over by then. Yeah, the hope obviously is that the Afghan National Security Forces will be able to fully take over by late 2014. Now, they've come on a very long way in recent times, but they're nowhere near ready to stand alone. I was at Patrol Base Hazrat last week. The objective of Operation Omid Char, Hope Part 4, was for the Afghan National Army to secure the area and build this patrol base. The op was Afghan-instigated, planned, and we're told Afghan-led on the ground. But there's absolutely no way they could have done it without the Irish Guards, without counter-IED support, although they did bring some of their own, and crucially without 2-3 Engineer Regiment, who had to do the lion's share of the building work on the main patrol base and on a nearby checkpoint. Now, speaking to the Afghan commander on the ground, he says he'd need more men and more weapons systems to do that kind of thing alone. Four years, of course, is a pretty long time. That side of things could well come together. But as for ISTAR, we're talking about the billions of pounds worth of big-ticket drones, fast air, etc., operating in support of combat troops on the ground. That is a lot less likely. And, of course, the risk of any kind of a timetable is the political dilemma of what happens if the Afghan National Security Forces turn out not to be ready to take over completely by the time that we, ISAF, decide that we want to go home. Will Inglis in Afghanistan. Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, what was General Sir David Richards doing in Afghanistan? Afghanistan, apart, apart from the obvious? Well, apart from the obvious, he was, you know, he was talking to the troops and seeing the troops. But also, uh, David Petraeus, General David Petraeus, the commander there, is preparing. He's got, I think it's the second draft now of his report to President Obama later this month. And the general, General Richards, has got to know what's in there, what Britain's part of it. And it's a part of this great discussion. And uh, I think everybody now is going to watch for the day that, uh, that um, General Petraeus walks into the Oval Office and says, this is the future, our future in Afghanistan. Because when he says that, it's also the future of the British troops and the dates of the withdrawal and the sort of withdrawal. And the idea of handing over to the Afghan army, you don't do it in one phase. You do it, as we did in Iraq, with the different provinces. You do it in bits and pieces. And that is going to be the key to it. Christopher, thanks for now. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the woman whose campaign led to the repatriation ceremonies we see today. When we've watched it, me and my brothers and sisters, we all sort of think, our mum did that, and how proud we are. Crowds gathered once again in Wootton Bassett a few days ago for the repatriation of the 100th British soldier to die in Afghanistan this year. Christopher Davies was 22 and served with the Irish Guards. His family joined the crowds in the town in Wiltshire, where over the last couple of years has become a familiar sight to millions of people. It's become the focal point of Britain's tribute to members of the armed forces lost in Afghanistan. General Sir David Richards has said Wooden Bassett is a huge bonus for the military. But this public display, is it, uh, the public display of emotion, the best response to deaths in service? Mary Champion is the mayor of Wooden Bassett. They started in 2007. There have been many stories about how they began. Uh, different people have their own recollection. To my mind, the fact that there are different versions illustrates how very spontaneous the way the whole town has responded. I wasn't mayor at the time. Um, he used to go down to every repatriation, and me being a councillor, I used to follow suit. Bassett is now synonymous with the deaths of British soldiers. Is that necessarily a good thing? All we are doing is showing our respects to the fallen, their family and friends, and also showing our support for the armed forces. So it can't be a burden to us, you know. 
it's now grown into something that's uh, recognised internationally as well. Do you think it's got too big? How can it be too big? People only come there because they want to be there. They want to just show their respect. It can never be too big or too small. It's what people want to do. Long term, would you like to see it continue? Repatriations will continue until the closure of RAF Lynham. And then they'll go to RAF Bryce Norton. And then it'll be up to the people of Oxfordshire to determine what they do. Do you think it's important, though, that repatriation parades continue as they do at the moment? I do, because I think it, I think the um, armed forces appreciate it out there. It shows that we're supporting them, you know, we're behind them all the way. Wooden Bassett's Mayor, Mary Champion. Uh, Christopher, the Mayor said it will eventually be for the people living near Bryce Norton to decide whether to continue the repatriation ceremonies. Um, do you think they should? I think it's up to them, quite frankly, um, but it does start to raise, and it is raising, uh, another issue. Uh, there are those people, certainly in Whitehall, who are saying that these repatriation ceremonies, as they are, the parades, uh, are setting, starting to set public opinion, not against the soldiers, obviously, but against the war itself. And there, it's a combination of the, of the spectacle reminding people of, in their opinion, the hopelessness of it all, and that is that is something which the uh, which the, which the military itself understands. Well, the repatriation ceremonies wouldn't be happening were it not for the efforts of a woman who died a few weeks ago. When Edna Wallace's son was killed while serving with the Royal Anglian Regiment 45 years ago, she was shocked to learn he would be quickly buried where he fell. She set out to change things and after a campaign which included an appeal to the Queen, got the government to promise that in future British soldiers killed overseas would be returned home. Edna Wallace died at the end of October at the age of 89. Earlier I spoke to her daughter, Sandra Wood. first thing I can recall was that, um, my young brother saying there was a young lad coming up the garden path and it was a telegram boy. I don't know what it was, but there was my dad received, got, took it from him when he told my mum that morning. She was cooking, making apple pie, actually. I can remember my mum calling out, oh, no, not like that. She was absolutely determined from that minute that she was going to be there for the funeral. They had no money. The British Red Cross was eventually who helped them. Um, and they flew out on the Monday morning and they got out there for the burial. But when she they came home, she was just never happy that a young lad had walked up their garden path to tell them that he'd died, you know, in a telegram. It, she just didn't think that was right. And she wanted him home because she said she could never go and visit him in Aden because it was just too far away. She didn't want any other mother to experience this. She thought it was wrong when it wasn't wartime that nobody came to tell them, and she changed all that. She spent years doing this. I'm sure you can understand the amount of letters and everything. She went to the House of Commons. She kept on. She wrote letters to the Queen. The local MP, who was Patrick Gordon Walker, he had helped her get to the House of Commons and do that. And it was just a telephone call from him to say that they'd changed the law. And not only that, she made made sure that nobody went back on that because during the Falklands War, she reminded Margaret Thatcher that they were the rules when she was thinking of burying soldiers who died in action over there on the Falkland Islands. That's right. There was a, a man called John Knott and he'd, he made a statement from um, the House of Commons saying that, that in the Falklands they would just be buried where they dropped was the sort of expression they used. But... Um, immediately my mum and dad wrote letters again and a couple of days later Margaret Thatcher made a statement saying they'd been 
a misunderstanding. They have a choice now. If you, as a relative dies abroad, you can either be flown out to them and they can be buried there or you can escort the body home, you can have them brought home. You have a choice. How does it make you feel nowadays when you see the kinds of ceremonies and parades that happen at Wooden Bassett when soldiers are brought back? Well, I mean, when I've, we've watched it, me and my brothers and sisters, we all sort of think, our mum did that, and how proud we are. This is SITREP on BFBS. The Ark Royal sails into Portsmouth Naval Base on Friday morning for the last time. It's the final stop on the farewell tour for the Royal Navy's flagship before it's taken out of service in the new year. The decision to scrap the Ark Royal and the Harrier jets based on it has been one of the most controversial consequences of the government's defence review. Well, Captain Jerry Kidd is the commanding officer of HMS Ark Royal and he joins me now live. Uh, good to talk to you, Captain. How's the journey going? Well, very well. We've just literally um, come back from the North Sea and we've just anchored off the Isle of Wight uh, in readiness for our final entry into Portsmouth Harbour, our home base port, uh, first thing tomorrow morning. And how smooth running has your, your final journey been? Well, it's been um, bittersweet, really. We sailed uh, from Portsmouth about three weeks ago after the decision was made to take this fine ship out of service three years early. And we firstly went up to Scotland to... Uh, uh, de-store all our ammunition, all our bombs and rockets that we normally carry around. And having done that, we took the ship back to Newcastle, to um, where she was built. She was built, of course, on the Royal Tyne about 25 years ago. So we went back to say goodbye to the shipyard workers and the welders and the people in the northeast who have supported the ship so well over her life. And then we've um, just gently come down the North Sea over the last week or so doing the last of our flying operations and the last of our Harrier jump jets left the deck um, last week. So a very poignant time, but... Um, a very reflective time, quite sad, but, um, yeah, morale's good. I just want to bring in Christopher Lee, our defence analyst here, because um, he is due to come and see you come into Portsmouth um, on Friday. Uh, Christopher? Yeah, I was only because I was there 25 years ago. Cool, I'm getting old. Listen, Captain, yeah. tell me one thing. You're, it's not just another ship paying off, is it? It's a naval capability that's paying off. And I'm just wondering how you answer people, because you have to. When they ask, how is it that a decade of expertise can be abandoned and then 10 years later you start flying and operating just as if nothing had happened? Well, I think you'd be very careful you're making assumptions there that we, the Royal Navy uh, won't be flying at all. And, of course, that's wrong. Uh, as you know, the government's committed to maintaining... But you won't be flying off, the, off, off an aircraft carrier. Sorry? You won't be flying off an aircraft carrier. Yeah, we, we will be, and uh, we, we're keeping one aircraft carrier in service. Of course, uh, illustrious, uh, and also our ocean will be remaining in service uh, with the Royal Navy for the, for the period before the new aircraft carriers come into service. What, what, what we must be careful here, of course, is a lot of the skill sets needed to operate aircraft at sea will be kept because we'll be operating helicopters and Chinooks and Merlins and Apache aircraft on these decks uh, throughout. So. We can be very careful when, when you say we're taking out all flying for the Navy. That's absolutely wrong, totally wrong. And, of course, we do have coalition and uh, other Navy aircraft from the Americans and from the French and the Italians and Spanish who do still operate Harrier aircraft, and hopefully we can use some air expertise to maintain the skill set. So there's a proper plan and uh, a coherent plan that we can do our best to manage uh, the fixed-wing gap, which is what I think you're alluding to here, uh, before we get the joint strike fighter come in. 
Captain, on a, a personal note, how difficult has it been for you, though, uh, coming up against public opinion, which will no doubt have been very much in support of you when you know that the decision's been taken, there is a campaign to try and save the Ark Royal, uh, but you have to just go along with what's been decided? Well, that's right. I mean, you know, for me as the captain, it was, it was dreadfully sad. It was a complete shock. And, you know, she's an iconic ship. She's Ark Royal. She's a fleet flagship. And... You know, it's not just the ship, it's the, the crew on board, the thousand people that serve here. Uh, and also, it reflects a lot about the country, I think, because she, she's a fine ambassador for the country. She's both at peace and at war over the last 25 years. She's given an awful lot to the country. She's served faithfully. Uh, whether it's been from Bosnia in the 1990s to the coalition effort to liberate Iraq in 2003, to supporting British industry, disaster relief. You know, she's been around the world. She's been well over 600,000 miles in her life, and she's done really well. So I look back with real pride. Um, but of course, it tends with sadness that this decision takes her out of service early, earlier than we expected. But, um, you know, we have to look to the future, and uh, we look forward to the Queen Elizabeth class, the new aircraft carriers coming in. Uh, uh, complement aircraft for the end of the decade. And just briefly, Captain, what did the Queen say to you when she came to the Ark Royal recently? Well, as always, it's a complete honour to have Her Majesty uh, on board. Of course, this ship uh, was launched by her mother, the Queen Mother, uh, back in 1981. So there's been a very close connection with the Queen and, and the Queen Mother over the years. And we were delighted to host her for the last time a couple of weeks ago. And she, she was delightful as ever. And, of course, um, she was also sad that her, her flagship was leaving service early. But, uh, yes, that, that's, it was a great boost for morale. Great for the ship's coming to see her. And we had a great day. All right, Captain Jerry Kidd, all the best for your final journey. And thanks very, very much for making time for us today. Thank you, Kate. Uh, Christopher, a sad moment. I hope you do make it tomorrow to see it come in. I shall try. I shall try. It shall be down there. I hope that uh, what they call sparrows, something or other. <laughs> You'll make it one way or another, I know. Uh, tell us what's coming up in the next week, then. Uh, well, I'm going to look forward to the uh, 14th of December when uh, David Richards is giving the annual lecture at the Royal United Services Institute. But then, the next day, Liam Fox, the Secretary of State, is going to be answering questions in the Commons about Afghanistan. And one of the things, questions he's going to answer, sanguine. Mm. Do, or do we hurt? All right, Christopher, thanks. That's great. Thanks for your time today, and I hope you get out of uh, deepest, darkest Kent at some point to see the HMRC Art Royal come in. Do get in touch if you have any thoughts about the topics we've covered. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be here again next week. Bye-bye for now. Discussion and analysis. analysis. This is Zigrep on BFBS.